0: Food Talk with Mike Colameco is brought to you by Cento at centofinefoods.com, King Arthur Flour at KingArthurFlower.com, and Colavita at colavita.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Welcome, Mike Colomeco here. Mike Colomeco's Food Talk Heritage Radio Network. But you know that if you're listening, because you had to, you had to get here to find us, right? This is wasn't an accident in your car. It's not that kind of radio, is it? Anyway, great show today. We had to make a couple of last minute changes and be nimble. Um, we had three guests slated, two back to back for a reason, but one of them unfortunately came down with the flu, which is going around. So I will not have Adam Lowry with me. Adam's one of these guys that came to my attention because he was written about in that Forbes. I think it was 30 under 20 or no 20 under 30 something like that one of those things yeah 20 under 30 sounds better uh he's a kid in his 20s who's stoked um parents have a moving business he got a brilliant idea years ago about people moving and leftover food turned it into some action and created fight against hunger um where they raise a hell of a lot of food every year that goes to people that don't have enough to eat which is a huge problem around the country as we all know unfortunately he had to pull out at the last minute um it was gonna be a good segue because we have andrew zimmern coming on the phone in a couple of minutes from bizarre foods who's going to talk about what he's doing with um munchies people's choice awards Uh, general mills website we'll we'll talk about what he's doing so it's kind of a tie-in about food and feeding people which is a big issue today uh you know even though we have a a radio network here devoted to food and celebrating the pleasure of food and dining we also know that times are tough out there in this country and there's a lot of people that don't have enough to eat right here at home but anyway we'll get to andrew in about five or six minutes and after andrew we've got with us lawrence Spiewak, and we're going to talk to lawrence about uh, a spirit I came to rather late in life, but it hasn 't stopped me from making up for lost time uh, and that would be tequila i 'm um, a big big fan of really good blanco tequilas I have known to drink a few after dinner at night with a cigar and um, yeah i don't you know my last test, my liver was fine, so there we go that 's all i 'm going on. I go annually. doctor says the liver's good i 'm like, okay, great all right anyway, a couple of things before I get Andrew on the horn here. Um, We filmed our last PBS show of the season in New York City. We'll be in Portugal in in a month to film out the last show or two. But we a couple of great restaurants down on Clinton Street. I love how the whole Lower East Side just keeps moving. Clinton's such a funny block. I mean, Wiley Dufresne has been down there for 10 years doing pretty darn well. I mean, he's sort of the guy that has defined that street as a culinary destination when there was none other. Um, It's a busy street traffic-wise. It is the first right-hand turn into Manhattan as you come off the Williamsburg Bridge. I live down there, and I can tell you it's nonstop cars, uh, but getting those cars to stop and eat has been something else. Lots of restaurants have come and gone, but it's really beginning to turn around, so Wiley's there. Ivan Orkin is going to open up, and Ivan Ramen um, should have been open months and months ago, but it's going to open soon up towards the house and end of that strip. We were down with um, the people at Pig and Cow, Leah Cohen, who's a great, 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 young, talented chef, grew up in Scarsdale, New York, got into cooking. <laughs> like so many us, she got into cooking because she hated school I, th- I noticed that with a lot of chefs I mean there are a few academic chefs there are a few chefs that got into food after they got their you know masters in molecular biology at Yale but trust me they're in the minimum most of us were just sort of the kind of kids that stared out the window during algebra and um, didn't do terribly well, and were kind of destined to fall into a trade. And we found we like cooking. And Leah is of that generation, the sort of just just a little bit older than the millennials, I think. Um, but she was you know kind of grew up watching the Cooking Network and. Parents are dentists, and she went to the CIA, and she's killing it. She was on season five of Top Chef. Um, She's got a great little restaurant there. She's half Philippine, half American, and um, has a place in the Philippines, has traveled extensively throughout Southeast Asia, so pig and cow is her homage to those cuisines. And we also covered a restaurant almost across the street called Yunnan Kitchen, um, where Erica Chow runs a great little restaurant. Uh, You know, I've always loved this place because it's so different than Cantonese Shanghai. It's very subtle. Uh, not a lot of fried stuff, not a lot of starches, real clean flavors, really herbaceous. If you've never had Yunnan cuisine, that's probably a great starting point on Clinton Street, Yunnan Kitchen. Got a really good review from the Times a while back, um, and I just love the food. Super, super clean flavors, and if if you're vegan or vegetarian, about half the menu is ready-made for you, because that's about half the menu is just by design or accident, or that's how they eat over there, vegan and vegetarian, so it's classic. Uh, Later tonight, I'm going to go see Bill Frizzell, the great jazz guitarist at the Village Vanguard. He's one of my absolute favorite, favorite guitarists, and the Vanguard is my absolute favorite room to see jazz, so today's a good day. Radio, ran over the Williamsburg Bridge earlier today, Um, run felt good, weather was good, made a left-hand turn, ran down to Mason Premier, glad they weren't open, because they've got really good wine and dollar oysters after four but i was there earlier so i made a left left hand turn on grand came back over the bridge and ran back to my apartment so grand street manhattan to grand street brooklyn good little four and a half mile trot with that bridge a hill in between good stuff off to chinatown cook some stuff for my dinner um and then easy tonight off to see bill frizzell there's so much going on let let me get to andrew because i believe oh i've put headphones on hold on it might help uh andrew are you there sir
2: I am. How are you? Good.
1: Sorry about that. Because you've been on for five minutes saying what's what the fuck? When's this guy? No, no, no.
2: I was I was actually hoping you would just keep going. I love listening to you talk about food, and you were talking about a you know some subjects very near and dear uh, to my heart in a place of New York City that you know I used to buy a lot of dope uh, (laughs) down there, you know, twenty five thirty years ago when I was the stare out the window during algebra uh, (laughs) kind of kid.
1: Well, you know, we all have those stories. That's one of the common threads. I think that uh, that great, great early work by Tony Bourdain, um, whatever the heck, Kitchen Confidential, really shed the light on something we all knew. I'm an older guy, so I started cooking back in the, really the late 60s, early 70s, and you know, it was kind of a bunch of ragtag knuckleheads.
2: Well it it's a fascinating thing because at the point in time serious cooking was going on and there were people who were taking it very seriously but for the most part Americans didn't take food as seriously <laughs> as they do now. So I mean you know once that happened yeah. and people found that there was honor and respect uh to be had um the uh from an outside resource not from your own inner resource where I Think for healthy people, it should come from the in the first place. But it's it's amazing how that's changed the dynamic in kitchens. I mean, there's still pirate ships and there's still places where you know folks with a lot of issues can find a safe place to hang out and be crazy. Uh, but for the most part, uh, those rock and roll days have have changed a little bit. Oh, totally. The imagery is still there. You know, tattooed chefs and <laughs> you know craziness and you know doing shots during the dinner hour in public view of the kitchen. But the real sick shit, I. I think, has stopped to a certain degree, which which makes me just a, a charming reminiscer, which is kind of sad, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't By think way, so. I, sh- I think we're both... By also say I happen to be a big fan of uh, Leia's and and uh, Pig and Cow in particular, and the great thing is it's for, for anyone scrambling for their Google, it's Pig and Cow, K-H-A-O.
1: Correct, correct. Yeah. The, the Thai spelling for rice, I believe it is. Yeah. yeah. So tell me, so for, for, congratulations on you and your Phoenix-like rise from the ashes. It's always great. I love those stories. Um, in America and around the world, and you're, you're a great exemplar of that. And the TV show is just killer. Everyone knows. I mean, my kids tease me all the time. The show is super popular. It's good for you, brother. Thank you, man. So let's talk about what you're doing. Tell me about this. So we, we live now. I mean, we've had the beards seemingly forever. And then, you know, other awards, Sophie, there's the Food and Wine July cover of the 12 Best Chefs or 10 Best Chefs yep. in America. So we're kind of overdosing with awards. And now I see this thing come along, and I'm like, well, all right. if if he's involved let's talk about it so what is this Munchies People's Choice Awards
2: well here's the fascinating thing and and <laughs> I kind of came at this from the inside out um, I no one really likes the the organizations don't like it when people say so but it's certainly less transparent than it really is I mean my my name is you know I'm involved at food and wine on a, a lot of different projects um, I'm involved with the the folks the beard on a lot of different things I'm involved with the people at San Pellegrino world's best 50 do, deal. Um, You know, folks who do what I do, who spend a lot of time in restaurants running all around the world, get get asked to contribute to these organizations. I'll, I'll let people's imagination go where it needs to there. Um, And and I've been a part of this for a long time, and I always felt that there was one thing missing a little bit, despite this wonderful digital age that we're in. Nobody had really found a way to connect um, what people in Kansas City were thinking about Scoop shops and pizza and Chinese food with what people in New York City were thinking about: scoop shops and pizza and Chinese food, and that they were very they were different cultures, and I I, I didn't like these um, these big online sort of fill out a subscription you know fill out some paperwork. Contest because I found then that they were doing what Yelp does, which was right. just crowdsourcing lack of expertise and you know lack of context, um, and so therefore it was kind of meaningless. And you ended up with things like Basket Robbins is the best scoop shop in America just because more people were familiar with it, right? Um, you don't get so me started on the whole just, Yelp. I was in a meeting. I was in a meeting at General Mills, and somebody, you know, I brought this up, and they said that one of the websites that they ran. And tablespoon.com was actually toying around with an idea of something similar and so I met with them and they asked me to get involved and I said, you know, I'm not sure. I said, but but if you're willing to let me put together a panel and if I can get the panel of people who kind of know what they're talking about to put forth a list into uh, of nominees and then have the country sort of chime in, I said, then we start to have a a, a conversation on the Tablespoon.com community about what is excellence, how would you go about, even if you could, comparing Jenny Brittenbauer's scoop shop in columbus ohio with the big gay ice cream guys with humphrey slocum in san francisco um and i thought that it would be popular but i had no idea it would explode in year three into the sort of massive i mean we're in the middle of voting right now in year three and we've already uh, before we were halfway through we had already well eclipsed the incredible jump that we had last year in year two over the first year in year one. So it's a, it's a fun thing to do.
1: So the idea is you reach out to the people you know who are conoscenti, who have seasoned palates, who do travel, yep. and again, yep. I, I don't get me started on Yelp, because it's just any asshole with a computer connection yep. Yep. who can exactly. who can sometimes spell yep. Um, yep. means nothing. So that, with the help of, and I saw there's like 40 or 50, there's a list of many of the familiar names that we know, people who are kind of in our, our little fish tank, who help curate this list.
2: That's correct. And some of them are experts in their area yep. or in a certain type of food. I mean, you know, we have everyone from, you know, like the, the Lee brothers, you know, who are yep. based out Matt of and Charleston, yep. um, and certainly with as much expertise of what's going on in the Southern culinary canon as anyone, all the way to guys like uh, Bill Esparza, who writes a blog called Street Gourmet LA, who I think is one of the most knowledgeable people both people about Southern California food culture, but also Mexican food. Regional Mexican food is as geez, as bright as anybody on that subject as there is, and you know, you know, clever New York City writers like Alan Salkin and a whole radio and everyone in between. There are a couple of chefs on that list, so it's I think it's fairly representative. And that number, by the way, of panelists has grown from ten to twenty to forty three or whatever it is this year. It's it's really cool because the more people are involved, the richer the process is.
1: For the listeners out there in streaming radio land, is there a website they can go to to find out when when the...
2: You go, you vote, um, and uh, the stuff is announced. Uh, You can vote from now till March 31st, and I think we announce April 4th, that Monday. I think the voting closes, and then there's the weekend, if I'm remembering the calendar correctly. And it's fun. There's 20 categories. Everything from, you know, where's your favorite place to eat pizza to, you know, Where's the best place to get an ice cream cone? And I think it's it's people voting on places that, have already achieved a level of excellence and notoriety and it's it's fun and we now we've had three this will be three years of results the first two years showed me that what I had sort of dreamed about as a good idea would actually work and we're not we're not competitive with the beards or food and wine 10 best by any stretch of the imagination we're a fun way for people who want to be involved in this explosive new food culture in 2014 in America to you know have a conversation with people on the other side of the country.
1: Well, all right, so again, the website is Tablespoon.com. You got it. The winners will be announced around, on or around April 4th. Anybody can go on there now that's listening. And we do. I mean, one of the neat things about her Radio Network, I just see from... Feedback I get emails and Facebook, and is that it's not, it's, it's, it's a big national presence this station, and we actually have kind of an international contingent that listens as well, so it's a sure. fun space to be. So, anybody that's listening, you go to tablespoon.com, you can vote in, and, it, and it's, a, it's a broad category. Everything, including what you said to best TV show, best TV host, best blog, best personality, there's a whole bunch of categories to weigh in on. Um, and, and, you know, it's so funny, you're right, Andrew. If I had said to my high school guidance counselor back in the day I wanted to be a chef, I don't think that word existed in the American lexicon <laughs> 70s it,
2: was, it, it did but it was pronounced in french
1: yeah it was something it was, it, it was a bunch of head cooks is what i had a bunch of guys in t-shirts with old-fashioned tattoos that learned how to cook in the army or the navy and smoke <laughs> cigarettes on the line i remember all the wooden cutting boards had burn marks around the perimeter from when they put their marlboros or camels down to carve prime rib in, in between the, you know, the hockey game and service Yep, absolutely. Well, and so luckily, it's all changed, so we, we can do what we do for a living.
2: Thank, thank thanks for coming it's a on. Little, it's a little bit of both. I mean, you know, the yeah. for, the forgiving place that we're in is that preparing food for people is mm-hmm. a way not only you get dignity and respect for yourself, but a way to give it to somebody else, which is a very self, you know, it's a very fulfilling circle of trust there. And I, I, the nice thing about the, the people in the food world is I'm convinced, after being involved now in an awful lot of businesses, uh, the people who who work in the restaurant industry are the finest and most beautiful people in in the entire world I, I just i love being a part of uh of that group i couldn't
1: agree more i think that one of the one of the um myths about choosing food service as a profession particularly on the kitchen end of it is that uh, people watch tv and they just think oh it must be so cool you drive around in limos you walk out the door and people are throwing stuff you know your average chef Line cook coming up in any city in this country is working 60-plus hours a week. They're getting burnt. They're getting cut. They're st- standing on their feet all day long. But they're there. There's a generosity of spirit. They're really there to make the best food they can that day, that night, for service, for you to eat. And that's really what you're doing. I mean, at the end of the day, it is pure and simply a hospitality and service business.
2: It, it, it is incredible. I mean, you know, look, the, the fact of the matter is is that now with all of the digital technology, uh, Uh, web programming that's competing with television and the explosion of television channels, yes, there are more quote-unquote high profile TV you know chef celebrity opportunities than there ever have been, but even with that being said, those number of opportunities are extremely small and despite a very large people a population of young uh, dreamer culinarians that think that that 's the end all and be all that 's very very rarefied air and and to your point, I think that this whole you know, hey, I just got out of cooking school, when do I get my TV show mentality is going to settle down because I think there are a huge volume of young culinarians who are working hard in those restaurants who are realizing, you know something, the end goal is, is not necessarily to be uh, a chef testant, you know, on Top Chef or to, you know, have my own TV show. The The goal is to is to pursue excellence in what I'm doing now. And um, I think it's a really cool thing.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. It totally... And and, uh, again, to your point, I think it's... it's, There's a whole young... Americans, there's never been a better time to be in food in this country. Uh, It it has changed so much in a generation from the sort of the dark days of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when food really was secondary, people didn't care. You couldn't get it. And these days, uh, like you, or not quite nearly as much, but I'm I'm in Europe a couple times a year eating. I've been going to Europe since the 80s. There was a time when I used to come back and think, oh, man, I wish I could get that kind of bread, that kind of butter, those mushrooms. And I will tell you, the the food scene here in America is as good or better than anywhere else on the planet right now, and it just Keeps getting better,
2: and I, I as I couldn't agree more. And as somebody who spends a lot of time traveling to a lot of other continents, I've gotten a lot of I've gotten a lot of crap about this, but I, I insist that it's true. The best Chinese food in the world is being cooked um, in North America right now, and I throw that in because there's a couple communities in Canada that yep. would blow your mind. Yep. Um, the best food of any type, generically speaking, is found here in the United States. Never before in human history has so much attention been thrown at food as it is in our culture. Never before has excellent quality been so revered. You, it is, it is an amazing and thrilling time and I hope that that part of it doesn't go away. I just hope our perception of what our relationship is to that changes because right now eating well in America is still a class privilege and I'm still, I don't quite know every solution to all the problems despite wanting to, to everybody how to run their lives because you know i'm a new york city jew um, but the, the simple fact of the matter is is that there's this incredible food life that is available for so many if we can start to make that available for all then we will have really achieved something and i think it's out there for us preaching to the choir hey when when you're in town get a hold of me through your people
1: let's have you come out to the studio out in Bushwick love to have you We could wax poetic about this topic for the full hour
2: I could talk to you forever I love your program and it's great to uh, it's great to speak to you anytime
1: thank you my guest has been Andrew Zimmerman the super popular host of the show Bizarre Foods he's great he's got a great personal story um, and he gave you the website information so we know all about that thank you Uh, that's Tablespoon.com you go to it's the General Mills website Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, let me introduce my guest who's in studio, who's in town from a a tough place, Boulder, Colorado. If you've ever been to Boulder, you know I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. Boulder's probably one of the most beautiful little cities. College town, perched up in the the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. What a place to be. Lawrence Spiwak. Lawrence, welcome. Hi. How are you, Mike? Good man. So you're here because you have a tequila company. And I mentioned to you before we came on the air that... (laughs) Although I'm older and I've I have been drinking a long time, <laughs> <laughs> As, you know I've had that kind of relationship. I think I remember the f- first time I drank in junior high and thought, "This is great." That's not the best thing to say on air. I know that's not and shrinks everywhere going. Tell them to shut up. Um, but it hasn't ruined my life. Uh, but b- big wine drinker. Uh, I think I've been drinking Negronis longer than most people that drink Negronis now who have been on the planet. Um, and kind of a darker spirit guy, so you had the usual romance with Scotch, discovered Armagnac a long time ago while working in France and traveling through France, and that's one of my favorites. And uh, now, of course, there's this explosion in America of bourbons and Rye and small artisan producers. And I, I, I wish I could place the moment, because it would be to point, um, but I don't. Remember the moment when I, I, I think I said to you, it might have been just doing my old radio show at WOR, when I had a guest come in with some tequilas, and we tasted. And for the first time, I remember he poured a, of course, came with the Blanco and añejo, and the, what's the third one called? Is well, the, it's the Blanco, the Reposado, and the añejo. Sorry, the Reposado is yeah. the one that sees a little bit of oak. And I remember sitting down with the Blanco and and just kind of examining it the way you examine alcohol with my nose, and I'm like, whoa, this is really interesting, and kind of saw the viscosity in the glass, and then had a couple of sips and said, what the hell is this? Yeah. It was herbaceous and floral and peppery and nuanced and you know, flavors that disappeared and came back and, and stayed and lingered. I mean, exactly the same way that I love wine. And even the texture, even the weight of it in my mouth was so different than... The usual association, which, you know, sadly, I mean, for a lot of us, tequila was Cuervo shots and vomiting four hours later, you know, and, and not wanting to look at the lime for the next two weeks. Exactly. So how did a kid from Philadelphia, uh, suburban Philadelphia, at that end up ro- in the, with this tequila? A Jewish kid from suburban <laughs> Thank Philadelphia. You. This is my dad. <laughs> tell, me, tell me the story. So uh, go back. Well... Um how far do you want me to go back? <laughs> <laughs> when did, so when did you – so you were – back to the beginning of this idea in your head okay. of tequila yeah. that you had, you had wanted. Cause it's a good story. It's you. Your partner was going to be here, but he can't be here today, your business it's, partner. Exactly. So talk a little bit about sort of that What it starts there. Um, I mean
3: basically Lance Sokol, who's originally from Mexico City is my business partner. Um, he and I met while we were running a business in Boulder, Colorado together, a business called Pangeo organics, natural organic skincare. And we were the operations guys. We were making things happen. We were creating products. We were getting them out to the market. We were dealing with a lot of different things. And together we started exploring, discovering tequila, um, whether it would be at night after work or on the weekends, we were getting together with our, our better halves and, um, our friends. And we were, Tequila was just our drink of choice. Um, to take it back a little bit further, for a second, you know, I had my bad experiences with Cuervo Gold when I was 18 years <laughs> old at a place that I wish I could remember the name of on Race Street in Philadelphia, <laughs> where you know we we drank a lot of Cuervo Gold, and that night was awful. And and for years I didn't drink tequila after that, right. um, and there was really nothing decent to drink, so to speak, um, and and basically. Moving back to, to more current, um, Lance and I were just developing this passion. so Lance was from Mexico City, he was born and raised there. He was traveling back and forth to Mexico every so often and he 'd bring bottles back and he was introducing to me introducing me to new things and so I was getting to learn all this new information about tequila and how beautiful it is, and what you described earlier about you know just how it 's very, very different, and there 's so much more to it now. ...than we knew before. Um, we, we don't have time to go into all the history. There's, there's history with tequila. There was brands at certain times in history... Um, ...specifically right around in the 80s at some point... ...that were doing amazing things with tequila... But it just wasn 't the time I mean people weren 't open to it in, in America it didn 't really take off the way that it should have at that time, because everybody thought of cuervo and and cuervo gold that is because Cuervo makes some delicious tequila it 's just there's one type they make that 's not
1: but even you know, but the, the market this is almost what Andrew and I were talking about too uh, the the mentality uh, America was kind of the beginning. Uh, excuse me, the 80s were kind of the beginning in America right. of what was going to become a remarkable right. food scene. Because yeah. we still, I mean, the fine restaurants were still relegated to our biggest cities. Uh, ingredients, we really didn't have them. I mean, we were still importing a lot of stuff from Europe. In terms of the wines that we drank, it was still very much Burgundy and Bordeaux. And the beginning of California, I, I mean, I was here, I was in, came to New York in 82 as a CIA graduate. Mm-hmm. It was kind of baby step time. So, In the world of spirits, for sure it would have been too early for tequila.
3: Yeah, without a question. And it just the world on some level outside of Mexico wasn't really ready for it. And at that time, up until very recently, Mexico was the largest consumption country of tequila. And now the U.S. has surpassed that. And now they're saying that now that tequila is allowed to be exported to China, that China will very quickly become the number two in front of Mexico. So it will be U.S., China and then Mexico, as far as consumption goes. So, Lance and I were learning a lot about tequila. We were teaching ourselves. We were exploring and experimenting. And honestly, what happened, the way it happened, we were at a liquor store one night in Boulder, Colorado. We were at Liquor Mart and we were looking at the shelf and we were getting ready to pay another 60, 70 bucks for a bottle of Blanco tequila that we loved. And we used to split them. You pay 30 bucks, I'll pay 30 bucks, we'll get a bottle of that and then we'll share it. And um, we just looked at each other and said, man, we could do such a better job. We felt that we could do a better job than what was there from a craft standpoint, from a from an authenticity standpoint, from a modern packaging standpoint, from a, you know just an excitement standpoint, and so we decided. It was almost nine years ago. We decided that we would try and business plan around a brand of tequila. We picked it up and put it down for six years went by, and not much really happened. And we always got to the point where it seemed like. We were going to need a lot of money to pull it off, and we would get a little intimidated by that and say, "Well, until we find that money, we really have
1: there's nothing we can do with this idea." A lot of money to 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 become a producer or to partner with a producer or to bring in the inventory or just get the whole thing started. Yeah, just to get the whole thing started,
3: but then to market the brand. Right, the market's huge. marketing's huge. It's everything. Yeah, so to market the brand and get it out there and really compete with the big brands, we were just you know we did the research and we figured out that it was going to. It's the reason.
1: It's the reason that we would know that. Querible off the top of our heads. we would know Corona, and none of this stands for excellence. What it stands for is somebody just threw a, half a billion dollars at an advertising market, and those became the brands that were synonymous with the product.
3: Yeah, most of the time, that's the way it happened. There's yeah. unique um, situations where, there were, where it didn't happen that way. But <laughs> yes, exactly. And so after six years, uh, we had left our positions where we were. We both went off to do other things. Lance found himself working in the agave nectar industry. Uh, One of the largest agave nectar importers into the U.S. is in Colorado. And so he was there traveling back and forth to Jalisco two, three, four times a year. Um, And meeting with the producers who were making the agave nectar, well, they turned out to be the same guys that were growing agave for tequila production. So at the time, it never really crossed our minds that Lance was all of a sudden in this industry and he was learning and meeting people. And then one trip, he came home with a bottle of Blanco tequila and put it on my kitchen table and said, remember that crazy idea over the last six years we've had? I think I found something. You know, I think I really came up with something. And so we tasted this bottle together and it was the best Blanco that we had ever tasted. Um, And so that's really what allowed us to commit to the idea of doing this tequila brand and putting this tequila brand together and making it all happen. And it was this. It was this brand, Swear to Well, no. The brand that we tried was a different brand. So the the facility, the distillery that we had partnered with down there, um, they were producing six other brands over the last nine years, none of which ever became very popular. But when we got samples, we got samples of these other products that he had been making. And fell in love with it. So the Blanco that's in front of us right now that we'll taste, um, it, it's a little, it's slightly different than what we tasted originally. But for the better, um, we tweaked the profile with with our master distiller, Pedro Hernandez Barba, um, on the Blanco and the Añejo. The Reposado is exactly the way we found
1: it when we met him. It's, it's uh, delicious Reposado. We're gonna go. We have to take a break, so let's do it now. W- you're okay. gonna hear back from a couple of our sponsors who help make this show possible, who help support the station. And if you're listening, I do this once a show, so I'm not gonna bore the shit out of you. But if you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, well, you know, it wouldn't hurt once in a while to throw a couple of dollars their way. It is a um, non-commercial outlet. It's great. There's a ton of shows, as you know. We're one of the newbies, but there's a ton of shows on this network that you're listening to that have great food content. So Heritage Radio Network. Uh, here are three of my friends from my PBS program who support us on that platform who are also helping out here and I'll be back with my guest Lawrence Spiwak right after this
2: today's music is by brothers NYC onheritageradio.org No
0: uh. this little child in the morning I'm gone Because we always here till 12 was too long
1: Hey, folks, Mike Calameco here. Any good chef will be honest with you and tell you about 80% of good results from cooking is good shopping. You have to start with great ingredients. So when I'm looking to make a canned tomato sauce at home, I use Cento San Marzano tomatoes, which I've loved using for years. When I had my restaurant, that's what I bought. When I was a chef at restaurants and I could supervise the purchasing, that's what I ordered. They're great. I actually had a chance a few years back to go visit the area where they're from because I'm always curious with ingredients. What is the provenance? So we flew in in the middle of August to this little region just in the shadows of uh, Mount Vesuvius where there's great volcanic soil. And what I found out was these tomatoes come from lots of small family farms, little quarter and half acre plots where that's what they do. They raise tomatoes and sell it to the Cento factory that packs this tomato in the peak of the season in the middle of the summer. Cento nourishes the San Marzano tomatoes from start to finish with a 100% certified traceability program. Cento's San Marzano certification is the only one of its kind, assuring the consumer of authentic San Marzano tomatoes. So if you're looking for great canned tomatoes for great tomato sauce, look no further than Cento brand San Marzano. Michael Ameco here. Uh- when I started my PBS show, one of the deals with producing a PBS show is you're always looking for underwriters. And I thought, let me let me start first by going after people whose products I actually use in my kitchen. Um, I had a restaurant for years. I used Colavita olive oil. I did some research and found out that in the extra virgin category, it was the only Italian olive oil that was actually 100% Italian origin. There's a lot of stuff going on in that business that we don't really want to talk about. But um, a lot of the big brands call themselves Italian, have American, Italian flags on the labels. And their blends from tank farms from all over the planet. Pretty much based on price. Uh, Colavita is the exception. Um, really love the oil. Been using it in my house. Used it in my restaurant. Well, Colavita is doing something neat. They're doing a contest. If you go to ItalyContest.com or Colavita.com, where there's a link. But again, ItalyContest is the more direct way to do it. They're doing a contest on substituting butter for olive oil and baking goods. The winning recipe gets a free trip to Italy, courtesy of Colavita. So if you're thinking about cooking with olive oil and you're a baker, throw them your recipe at ItalyContest.com or visit Colavita.com and click the link there. You may win a trip to Italy.
0: King Arthur Flour, established in 1790, is America's oldest flour company. They're an employee-owned company whose passion is sharing the joy of baking and inspiring bakers worldwide. When King Arthur was founded in 1790, George Washington was the newly elected president of the United States. The company was sold by the Sands family to King Arthur Flower employees in 1996. They are now an ESOP company, 100% employee owned, with a 100% commitment to quality. Visit them at kingarthurflour.com.
1: Hey, folks, welcome back. I, was I waiting for music there? I don't know what I was waiting for. <laughs> anyway, welcome back. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, Mike Calameco's Food Talk here. Um, my guest is Lauren Spiewak. If I don't knock, hold on. Hold on. My microphone's falling. There we go. Um, we're talking about tequila, um, and we're going to learn. So let's let's do this. Let's talk about tequila kind of 101. <sighs> In a paragraph or two, what is the history? What is it? I mean, tequila started in Mexico. So talk about why, when, where, and how. I, I'd love to know. Well, tequila, as we know it,
3: actually started to be created and made in Mexico in the late 1800s. Um, and when I say tequila as we know it, there's a discussion and a debate going on right now. And I, you may know David Suro in Philadelphia from Tequilas. Yeah, you know him well, probably. Um, great guy.
1: And Excuse he, me. He's the guy. <laughs> Remember I was referring to you about what was my wake-up call? Yeah. A friend of mine does PR, Ana Jovan She was repping him. He has a restaurant in Philadelphia and a tequila company called something-something. Siembre Azul. Siempre Azul. And he came into studio at WOR. I think I did beverages every Friday because every day I had a theme. And I remember that was a day. He came in with three different tequilas, and he was actually explaining how to taste and tilt your head to one side and hold it and I'm like, dude, please, send me a fucking bear. I don't know if I'm going to do all that, right. you know, jump up down on one leg, right. but I... But to his credit, I remember drinking his Blanco yeah, and just going, what the fuck is this? It's very Where have you been all my life? That was the moment, and that's the man. So anyway, sorry. Keep going.
3: And the reason I I bring him up is because there's a debate and a discussion going on right now about when tequila was actually, or agave spirits, when they first started to be distilled and processed and manufactured in Mexico. Um, The history books basically tell us that in the late 1800s, the Spanish came to Mexico And they actually were the ones who brought the pot still to Mexico with them and taught the Mexican people how to distill. That's what they claim. I don't know what to believe, to be honest with you, but David has a project going on right now as... I believe it's part of his Tequila Interchange project where he likes to um, really educate people about agave and about Mexico and about tequila heritage. Um, and they're trying to do some research right now to prove that, that agave spirits were being distilled be- long before the Mexicans got there. And there's some arch- archaeological sites in Mexico where they've found what seem to be old vats and old stone um, Devices That were used to make tequila or make agave
1: spirits because specifically the pot still, which found its way to Europe a long time ago, um, the, uh, the Muslims coming in exactly. from North Africa, exactly. who were using it for herbal reasons. Exactly. So the the Muslim cultures, the Moors, as they came into Spain, basically brought with them this pot still mm-hmm. and the Europeans, us being <laughs> us, were like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> what if we put shitty wine in one end, cook the balls out of it, and then and then they, were, they would just drink that eau de vie clean, which right? Is like kind of gruff, and and then at some point the idea of oak casking it was they used to pack it in leather, and then at some point they packed it in oak, mm-hmm. and when they opened it up a year later, they're like, whoa. What happened? Yeah. So I mean, this whole thing is kind of an accident of history, anyway. Exactly. So the Europeans didn't invent it; it came to them from North Africa. Exactly. So who knows what happened with Mexico? Yeah. Exactly. B- because the I, I'm, I'm kind of with you that you, it seems like there's a propensity among mankind everywhere. Since the beginning of time, to figure out how to turn something into into booze, yeah. <laughs> whether it was beer or mead or wine, there was this predilection. As, as soon as they, as soon as it happened, probably by accident, and then they drank it and thought, "Whoa, this feels better than I was an hour ago." Exactly. Said, how did I do that? You know. Yeah. So there's, I mean, we've been tr- we've been tinkering with making mind altering or uh, alcohol forever. Yeah,
3: that's correct. So from the late 1800s, um, you get you had families like the Cuervo family that started to get into the tequila production business. And so, you know, I don't know a whole lot between the the late 1800s and probably the 1980s, you know, around that area somewhere, but it really started back around the 18, late 1800s um, distillation was coming into Mexico and at one time there was uh, a prohibition so there was a time where you actually weren't allowed <laughs> you to mean drink. T- you mean here? Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> no, in Mexico. Oh, there was? In yeah. Mexico too? So okay. There, I, I, don't, I can't recall the exact details. We could. We could Google it and find out pretty yeah. quickly but basically there was a Spanish king who decided that people shouldn't be able to consume the alcohol that was being made because it was making people act crazy and p- making people do crazy things so he there was this period of prohibition and then they decided to do away with that and then things kind of became um more acceptable at one point and i know i'm being very vague but honestly the history kind of escapes me a little bit um i've done some reading but basically From the point that it then became acceptable again, um, tequila started to become, uh, mezcal and tequila started to become the spirits of choice in Mexico and what people down there were drinking um, on a regular basis.
1: Because of the preponderance of agave. Yeah. That's what was available. Yeah, exactly. So this wasn't a culture that had a viticulture then. No. Which meant they weren't going to be making brandies from wine, which is what brandies are made from. Yeah. Grape varietals that would have become wine. Yeah. Uh, there was no culture of using grain, corn, or barley, or rye. Right. You had agave. It exactly. had a sugar content. Yeah. You could get this thing to ferment somehow.
3: Yeah. For sure. And if Lance were here with us right now, my business partner, he would remind us that actually one of the oldest wineries in the world is in Mexico. So I've been told. Yeah. And so, and I, for, I can't recall the name. He knows the name um, and he reminds me all the time,
1: but, but I can't. But it wasn't recall. part of the it, cultural. It was, there, they admit that that's a fact. Yeah. But it wasn't like the Mexicans were drinking wine no. or it was part of the culture, uh, you know, across the cultural board. It wasn't. Yeah. Exactly. And so, um, You know, I kind of feel like it's
3: a good segue into agave because really, as you mentioned, it's about the agave plant. Um, The agave plant, a lot of people, there's a misconception out there. Agave is not cactus. It's a succulent. It's actually, it's, it's part of the lily family. Um, it's a beautiful, amazing plant that I've recently fallen deeply in love with. It's incredible when you go to Jalisco and you go into the agave fields and you spend time with the plants, um, the energy and just the 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 presence of the agave plant is, is quite special. Um, but it is a succulent and it has um, very thorny and spiny leaves. Um, they're called pinkas. And the pencas are removed, the leaves are removed when you harvest the agave plant. And so it's the center portion of the plant that you're really looking for in order to process and make uh, a mezcal or or a tequila for that matter. Um, But basically... How long do the plants live? I'm just curious. So it's a century plant technically. So the the blue agave, so that's kind of getting a little technical. I don't know know if we need to go into it. But the, the blue Weber agave is the plant that tequila is made from. Um, the blue Eber agave, basically, at eight years, it's ripe, and it's to the point where it, it can be harvested and used for tequila production. Some people actually, uh, some some agave farmers, they, they harvest earlier, so seven years around there, um, because they want a little bit of a less sweet plant. And some let it go longer to almost 10, 12 years sometimes, because they're looking for more sugar um, in the plant
1: and And that sugar I sorry to interrupt you, but i'm yeah. i 'm kind of fascinated, so that sugar is what 's going to push the fermentation yes, uh, the higher i mean i, I correct me when i 'm wrong, the higher the sugar content residual sugar content would normally spike up the alcohol level correct uh, would it also result in a A different mouthfeel, a different texture, a more uh, viscosity. Without a doubt. Okay. Um, People who are really into
3: tequila, people who know tequila really well, um, sometimes they can actually taste the tequila and guess the bricks level of the sugar in the plant um, because it definitely gives you a certain result in the end. Without a question. Um, Our tequila specifically is made in the highlands of Jalisco. So we're using highland agave. And basically what that means is in, in the state of Jalisco, there's two regions where agave is being grown. There's the valley or some people refer to it as the lowland, um, and it's close to the tequila volcano, and that's where Cuervo, Sauza, some of the really big famous brands, that's where they're based and they come from, um, and then there's the highlands, which is much higher elevation, similar to Boulder, it's, you know, 55, 600, or 6,000 feet, um, so it's quite high, and the difference being that agave in the highlands is going to grow larger and sweeter than agave in the valley. And, there's amazing tequila coming out of the valley, so it's, I'm not saying in any way that there's not, but I don't often spend a lot of time talking about the valley just because I'm not there. I, our distillery is not there. I'm not familiar with that land and that process. But in the highlands, you end up with this larger agave, and the reason being that there's a microclimate there that allows them to grow bigger. So basically, um, in the highlands of Jalisco, the temperatures during the day are quite high and the temperatures at night drop quite low. So it's a similar thing to wine, and we can get into the whole, in a minute, I'm sure we'll get into the whole terroir thing, right? And
1: olives and everything, these are all in the same wheelhouse. Exactly. And I have seen this effect again and again in my travels, yeah. with my feet on the ground, you know, and, and with the wind blowing, and a shovel in my hand, That there's, it's abs- like terroir and microclimates dictate the end product. Everything. Period. Yeah, and if you think about it, I mean, that's the
3: planet, right? That's right. really what's going on, on the planet sense. for everything.
1: Um, and so, mm-hmm.
3: there's a there's the reason. What happens is there's more uh, moisture available in the air in the highlands of Jalisco than in the in the in the valley. And it doesn't mean there's no moisture in the valley, but there there's moisture there, but more in the highlands because the colder and warmer temperature variation creates creates the condensation. Um, I was fascinated when I learned that there is no
1: irrigation in agave. Fields. What was my next question? Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah. Was this, so is this all natural? We're not using as it any
3: occurs. water. Okay, um, you know, and so and the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is there's no chemicals being used either. So agave, I mean. We've been told, and I'm, you know, I'm becoming more of an expert, but I'm not quite, you know, I'm not an expert. Um, I don't admit to be an expert anyway. Um, but we've been told that the only time they'll use chemicals or fertilizers or things that they need for the plant is when there's a fungus or when there's a bug that attacks the plant, and they're having a a blight, so to speak, or they're having some situation where the plant is being threatened, and then they'll use something to help it recover or help prevent you know, killing the the uh, the crop. But, I mean, for the most part, otherwise, our, our tequila, it's not, you know, certified on the bottle, but it's organic. Um, and so it's this beautiful plant that we harvest at eight years. What would normally happen with an agave plant is at seven years, it would put up what's called a quixote. So it would put up a giant flower stalk that comes out of the middle of the plant. And that flower stalk's job is to reproduce. And so it shoots up... Anywhere from twelve to twenty feet in the air, and there's beautiful flowers that open, and it would drop, normally drop seed, and that's the way one of the ways in which it could reproduce. Um, with agave, or when when you're growing agave for tequila production, you actually go out and you you chop off the Quixote, you cut it off, and so you keep it from doing its seed or going to seed, I should say, and then that puts a lot more energy back down into the plant and causes it to swell with True sugar.
1: True, with lots of other things harvest, yeah. because once. I don't care if it's an oyster or a basil stem. Once they decide it's reproduction time, it's not about flavor anymore. It's about <laughs> making the next generation. Exactly. And usually the, the, to the detriment of texture, flavor, consistency. Exactly. So the idea of cutting off the buds and not eating oysters in certain months of the year for that – same thing. Same yeah. story.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, so seven years, that's cut off. That happens. And then at eight years, it's swollen with sugar. And just it's it's really, in, in our case, it's ready to go at that point. So men and women or men, some people go out and harvest it with what? How's it work? So men harvest uh, agave. I, I haven't yet met a female hemador is what they're called. Okay. Um, but it doesn't mean they're not out there. Um, but most any of the guys down there that I've met, that it's they've been men. Um, and they're called I already said that, I guess. Um, But they go out into the field with a tool called a koa, which has got a shovel handle, a long shovel handle, basically, a wood handle. And on the end is a semicircular, half-circular blade that they sharpen on a daily basis. That's razor sharp. Um, People have lost feet using them. And what they do is they go out into the field. They begin to cut some of the leaves of the plant off. Um, they clear a space on the front and then they very quickly remove it from the ground. And so they, they, they kind of chop underneath it to remove it from its root base Mm -hmm. and then they tip it over and lay it on its side. And then they just proceed to chop all of the leaves off of it and they roll it and chop more of the leaves off of it until they get it. So that all the leaves are gone and you're left with essentially just a big round ball, which is the pina or the the heart of the agave plant. They call it a pina because when it's, uh, the leaves are all chopped off. It looks like a pineapple. Mm. Um, mm. But okay. but it's actually the heart, the corazón of the agave plant um, that you're harvesting. And that's where the sugar is. And then it's also, people think succulent. They think aloe, right? And so it's not, there's no juice in the leaves. It's, the leaves are actually empty. They're, they're very solid and fibrous. It's the middle of the plant that's where the sugars are, but it's still not even juicy in there. It's just very fibrous uh, and dense. How
1: do you and, process it?
3: So basically what happens is it gets harvested at, at uh, eight years. We take it to the distillery. They get cut up into quarters. And then what we do in our, in our distillery is that we slow roast the agave piñas for 56 hours in a traditional brick oven. So it varies... Time frames vary. Different distilleries use different formulations to figure out how long they're going to cook their, their agave. Um, but in our case, it's 56 hours. Now, the the analogy I've been using recently with a lot of people is you have a Thanksgiving turkey. And you, you cook your Thanksgiving turkey for how many hours? Seven hours, six, seven hours, however long it ends up being. So you get this slow, low-temperature, slow-roasted, beautiful bird, if you're doing it in the oven anyway. Um, and basically... It's that versus taking a turkey and throwing it in the microwave for an hour or whatever. It's just, you know, it, you, you're slow roasting the agave is what's creating a lot of the flavor. Um, it's caramelizing the sugars. It's, I got to taste last time we were there for the first time uh, cooked or roasted agave. It was something I had never experienced before in my life. It was a mix between a sweet potato and a pineapple, the flavor that it had. It was just amazing. So, after that process, then what? How how are we getting sugar and juice out of it? So, basically, what happens next is it comes out of the oven and it goes, for us, it goes into a device that's called a tahona. So, our tequila is 100% tahona processed, which is actually a rare thing these days. How do you spell tahona? T A H O N A, tahona. Um, It's a giant round stone wheel. Yeah, I've seen pictures of it. Yeah, that sits up on end and it rolls around, and that's how we crush. The agave and and extract the juice from the
1: agave. I was years back. I was outside of uh, outside of the uh, Beaujolais region of France, and there was a guy there, Jean-Paul who who's one of the last of the artisanal oil makers in in the world, and certainly in France. Who brings seed in from all over, the best seed, and that's what he had in the back of his facility. was this ginormous, ancient-looking grinder thing. And, I mean, he was making, like, pine nut oil and sesame seed. I'm like, how the hell do you even... That way. Yeah. The way it was done since the beginning of time. Exactly. So if that thing moves around, grinds, it turns into a mash, a pulp. Exactly. You're beginning to get a runoff.
3: Right. And so you're, you're, the key there is that you're actually crushing... The material, whether it's pine nuts or agave, whatever it is, with olive, you know, olive oil, the way they used to do it with olives, or wine you know, with grapes, you're, you're, you're crushing the material. You're not, in that way, you're just using weight to extract the, the, what you want from the inside. You're not destroying the integrity of the plant. You're actually keeping its molecules to get geeky for a minute. It's got these sugar molecules inside, it, and if you tear them apart in a weird way, um, you destroy them so that when you go to ferment them and distill them, you end up with a lot of methanol or you end up with a lot of things that you don't want. So the best way, we feel, is to use a device like a tahona uh, or to use a tahona, I should say, um, to extract the juice. At the same time that it's in the tahona, the, the process in the tahona goes on for 16 hours. But they're adding this beautiful, fresh spring water that's coming from an aquifer deep in the earth below the facility. Um, and and it's actually the water in the town of Atotonilco El Alto, where we're based in Mexico, um, that water, we've been told, is sought after by distillers all over Mexico um, because that town was originally created around a hot spring. Mm. And so the water there was hot at one time, and then it cooled over the years. So now it's cold or cooler and um, it's full of minerals. It's got this incredible mineral content. And so they're adding that water in as they're crushing the agave with the tahona, And then all of that juice and water together gets mixed and goes down into a holding tank. From there, it goes, gets pumped up into fermentation tanks. We're using stainless steel to ferment. There's guys out there who are doing a phenomenal job with some brands that are using wood. To ferment, which I'm sure you're well aware, is a great thing to do. Um, we don't do it that way, so we have a blend between old methods and new methods. How does the fermentation take place? What what is there? Is there yeast? What's involved? Yeah, so we use a proprietary yeast. Um, honestly, all I can tell you, all I know about it, honestly, is that it's a champagne yeast. Um, I believe it
1: comes from Canada. But I don't know what it is. The whole um, world of yeast is a whole. I could do a show, I could <laughs> yeah. do shows on the world of yeast. Exactly. Because most of the wine world, I mean, there's a few, there's a few places that are having natural yeast that occur on the grape that start the fermentation naturally. Right. In areas where you can have that happen, bioorganic usually, yeah. sure, really clean. Right. But for the most part, yeast, all yeasts are commercial. There's a, there's a little phone book where you can buy them, and it'll describe the flavor notes. Anyway, so you add the yeast of your choice. Yes. Exactly. And that begins the fermentation. How long does fermentation take place? 72 hours. Okay.
3: Yeah. So within 72 hours, you end up with what's called the mosto, um, which is the liquid after it's been fermented. Um, And then from fermentation, it goes to double distillation. So our product is distilled twice. The first pass is through a larger stainless steel pot still. And the second pass is through a smaller um, copper still, pot still. Um, And so after double distillation, you end up with the Blanco that we have in front of us. And then it, at that point, what we're doing is we're taking it a step further, and we're resting the Blanco tequila in stainless steel for two months before we bottle it. Right. right. I mean, so you see
1: this. We're aerating wine, right? You see this regularly with white wines that don't see oak. So you'll have it; it can sit in stainless steel, sometimes on the lees, sometimes not on the lees. Right. But at, once it's bottled, it has to sit too. It is not a drink. It's not a settled beverage yet. No, exactly. It needs time for it to. Something happens. We don't yeah. know what, but everybody doesn't.
3: Yeah. yeah. So there's a few brands out there, um, not, you know, that 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 rest blanco before they bottle it, but very few. Most most brands take blanco right from the still and go right to the bottle. Um, the thing that we don't like about that idea is just that it doesn't give the the liquid a chance to rest, a chance to open up, become more flavorful, become really what it can be, because um, you put it in a bottle and you put a lid on it and you just trap it and
1: you kind of hold it in time there. At that point, it's right. People i have had friends who be, oh, I found an old bottle of something in, in my dad's and I'm like, what is it? And I said, well, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> if it's sitting in a bottle for 20 years, it tastes like it did 20 years ago. It, once it's in the bottle, it's static. It's yeah. over.
3: Yeah. yeah. So as long as you handle it and treat it properly.
1: So then you have two other styles like everybody else has. Yes. We have, uh, yep. Talk about the oak you're using. So we're using um,
3: charred American white oak barrels. Um, the barrel.
1: Nice? So these like... The barrique, they know?
3: Um, to be honest, I just got asked that question okay. the other day and I'm not sure the All exact right. size. They're, well, I, the way I answered the other day was I said that they're, they're full size tequila barrels or whiskey barrels. So, whatever a standard whiskey barrel is, is, yeah. is what we're using okay. basically. Okay, 55 um, gallon or something like that? Yeah, I or think, enough. or 56. Something like that. I think, yeah. I think I can picture it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the barrels we have currently, they came out of the Jack Daniels distillery. So they've been used by Jack before. They were used by the Jack Daniel's distillery. So they had things like early times. They had things like Jack. They had several different whiskey brands uh, in them because there's a lot of brands that come out of that distillery. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So um, we're using those barrels. The Reposado, um, we take the Blanco when it comes off the still and we put some aside and we put it into these whiskey barrels. And we age it for seven months. So it's seven months on the Reposado. um, You start to get some really nice caramel butterscotch notes. Um, and a little bit of oak starting to show up in the spirit at that point. Um, the añejo, what we do is we go on further for, for 24 months, and so two full years. Um, the CRT, the governing body of tequila in Mexico, they have guidelines. Right. Oh, and, good. Smart. Yeah, it's very smart. And what I what I tell people all the time is most people don't realize is there's a lot of spirits being distilled and made in the U.S. now. There's not a, a lot of regulation around it. And so started. it's amazing the way that that happens. But yeah, in, in the thing people don't realize in Mexico is that there's this governing body. They, they literally test in a lab every batch of tequila that comes off a still. They're they're very serious about it, and it's no joke. And they want to see what's in it. They want to make sure it's safe. They want to make sure it's quality. They want to make sure if you're calling it 100% pure that it is 100% pure. Um, And so it's very heavily regulated on some level, which is good. It's a very good thing. And so what they say is that anything that's been in a barrel from two months to uh, just under 12 months or just under a year is you have to call it a reposado. And then anything from 12 months or a year to three years,
1: you have to call it an añejo so for fans of and and I think this is and without being judgmental I think there's a propensity across the spirit world to adhere to the idea that long, long, aging longer in oak is better. It's more expensive, that's for sure. So you'll see, uh, you know, cognacs and various, oh, they were McCallum Scotch. Here's the 12, here's the 7, here's the 14, here's the, and with, with each four or five years more of age, you're watching the price go up 50 or 60%. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know with McCallum, I love McCallum 12, and I think the 18 is just fucked up. Uh, <laughs> but whatever, maybe it's just because I'm cheap. But for my taste, and I remember when, David was his name, the kid from Philly, the guy from Philly? Uh, D- David Suros, Suros yeah, yeah I remember when David came. Like I remember saying, like right, like it was just uh, I'm pretty spontaneous that my favorite with him that day was the Blanco because I I'm just. The reposado, yeah, the reposado was kind of in the middle. It was kind of okay. It was kind of interesting because there are some nuances that are added there. But it's kind of like it's it's really coming from the oak. Then mm-hmm. it's not coming from the fruit. It's not an expression of the fruit. Now it's an expression of what it's been the vessel it's been stored in. And the older ones, just to me, were just like squished. You're really just drinking, okay, so it's vanilla, so it's tobacco, so it's tar, so it's cocoa, so it's toffee. Guess what? Everything else that sits in oak that long tastes the same way.
3: <laughs> exactly. It's, um, it's funny. I get that question all the time. People constantly ask me, is our best tequila our Añejo because it's the most expensive? Right. And I tell them, partly because I'm a Blanco freak, Me too. That absolutely not, right. that it's just not the case. It's, it so happens that Blanco is cheaper or less expensive than Reposado or less expensive to make, less expensive than Añejo, but the truth of the matter is is you have to decide what works for you. I mean, I'll reach for Blanco any day of the week over Añejo, and I would buy a bottle of Blanco for someone as a gift any day of the week over Añejo because I want them to have what I feel is the best. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of people in the world who understand or are starting to understand anyway that the Blanco is the base spirit when it comes to tequila, and so if you've got a good, solid Blanco then your Repo and your Añejo have a really good fighting chance. This
1: is just... There's one day I'll get a rum guy in here, Mm -hmm. and we'll talk about rum agricole versus the rest of the commercial rum. Exactly. And then specifically the white rums that are coming out of Martinique. Mm -hmm. Um, How... That's an expression of cane sugar. Yeah. That's what rum is. Yeah. Everything else, I have no idea what the formulation is. And honestly, I can guess and I probably don't want to talk about it. Right. Because it's just bullshit and molasses and additives and caramel coloring and a, a shit ton of time in oak and maybe oak chips to get it to something that everyone thinks is syrupy and wonderful. And I'm like, wh- Taste what it started from. Mm-hmm. That's what it's supposed to taste like. Right. So I'm with you. The añejos are just the purest expression of the fruit. Yeah, without a question. So w- Or I- the blanco. The blanco. Excuse yes. me. What did I just say? I'm an <laughs> idiot. That's what happens when you have three sips. I'm an idiot. The blanco. The blanco. I mean, the one that doesn't see any oak. And I have this discussion with wine a lot. I mean, oak and wine work beautifully, but there's some white wines and even some reds that I love when they're stainless steel because it's they're so open. Like yeah. the expression of the nose, the floral notes, everything is there. Exactly. Um, oak integration is great, but it, it has a way of kind of binding tightening and adding stuff and mm-hmm. a lot of vignerons that i talk to talk about you know wines made in the vineyard it's not made after the crush right my, my, my making great wines growing great grapes Without and the health of those vines yeah where can we find your tequila in the new york metro area a couple of stores
3: yeah uh, so in manhattan um it's it's readily available the the ones that i have on the top of my head is is not actually off premise i'm trying to think real quick um
1: if we go to a website, can
3: we find it? Yeah, so at? if you go to drinksuerte.com, our website, we have a store locator. S- how do you
1: spell Suerte? S-W-E-R-T-E. S-U. I'm yeah. an idiot. I know that. So
3: drinksuert okay. dot com. ecom Drinksuerte.com. Yeah, there's s-u-e-r-t-e. a store locator there. Hey, store. You can put in a zip code and find stores in New York. We're in Manhattan and Brooklyn.
1: Mainly we're in upstate, we're in some stores. Um, and I'm assuming that the Blanco retails for the mid-high 30s, the usual price range for qu- good quality tequilas. Yeah, right? the, yeah, exactly. Right, and then add a few dollars for each of the oak ones. And Correct. Great to have you on. Yeah, thanks Guess for having me. Lawrence Biewak. He's in from Boulder, Colorado. Great story. Fell in love with tequila. Kicked the idea around for eight or nine years this, or longer with his business partner and now is able to bring some of the best tequila out of Mexico into the United States. Thanks so much again.
3: Thank you for having me, Hey,
1: Michael. folks. Mike here, signing off. Got to go see Bill Frizzell, 8 o'clock set, 8.30 set at the Vanguard tonight. Um, Going to see the Allman Brothers next Wednesday, so I'll be hanging around with a lot of... A lot of old gray-haired hippies smoking joints. As soon as those lights go out at the Beacon, man, it's like, holy mackerel. (laughs) It's all those old dads getting stoned, and sometimes with their sons. It's pretty funny to watch. Anyway, I'll report back, uh, because I don't know if the Allman Brothers are going to be long for this world after this tour at the Beacon. Uh, Rumors are rife that this may be it for the band as we know it. Um, Anyway, have a great week. Great place to be, New York City. We'll see you next week, live again Thursday, with more of Mike Calameco's Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network. Be well.